0: Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to Aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hi, everyone. Sorry this episode is almost a week late. I lost my voice over Halloween weekend and couldn't record. And then, honestly, this episode just took on a life of its own. You'll see. I think it's a great one. But thank you for your patience. I'll be back on the usual publication schedule with our episode next week. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling. They make it easier than ever to discover the right content to enrich your life. As a leading destination for audio storytelling, Audible has thousands of titles, including audiobooks, groundbreaking originals, podcasts, and so much more. I love listening to audiobooks on long car trips, which, of course, I'm constantly on because I live in Los Angeles and it takes 30 minutes to go five miles. Recently, I've been listening to Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, and it is perfect for commuting or driving around the city because it's so funny. I love that it's narrated by Tina Fey. It feels like she's telling me a story on my drive. Right now, you can get one month of Audible for free by using offer code UNRULY. That will get you one free audiobook to enjoy on your next long drive. Go to audibletrial.com backslash unruly to get your free audiobook. And let me know what you pick because I want to know what to listen to next. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash unruly to get your free audiobook. Mm-hmm. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering a woman who is often hailed as one of the United States' greatest heroes rosa parks most americans know the highlights of rosa parks's story she was a black woman living in alabama under jim crow segregation one night she refused to give up her seat on the bus so that a white person could sit she was arrested and that arrest sparked a new fire for the civil rights movement one that led to the end of the separate but equal segregation laws but she was so much more than a nice lady who decided she was fed up Parks had already dedicated her life to the advancement of racial equality by the time she sat down on that bus. So today, we're going to talk about the rest of her story that tends to get left out of the conversation. Because Rosa Parks was a firecracker, an activist, a revolutionary. Real quick, before we get into her story, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot s-u-b-s-t-a-c-k dot com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. All right, let's hop back in time. Rosa Parks was born in Tuskegee, Alabama on February 4th, 1913. Her parents were named Leona Edwards and James McCauley. The couple met at a church in Pine Level, Alabama, and were married on April 12, 1912. They were both 24 years old at the time, and afterward, they moved to Tuskegee, Alabama, home of the Tuskegee Institute, which Booker T. Washington founded in 1881 as a school for black people. Leona was a teacher, and James was a carpenter and builder who often traveled around to build houses. Rosa had a rough start in life. She was a sickly child and always small for her age. She had chronic tonsillitis, which resulted in her missing a lot of school and growing up with few friends. It wasn't solved until she was nine and her mother was able to afford a tonsillectomy. Moreover, her mother was lonely in Tuskegee. She had gotten pregnant so soon after they moved there that she hadn't had a chance to make friends before Rosa's birth. In her autobiography, Rosa says, quote, at that time, women who were pregnant didn't get out and move around and socialize like they do now. They stayed pretty much to themselves. She said she spent a lot of time crying and weeping and wondering what she was going to do and how she was going to get along because she wasn't used to having a child to take care of." End quote. Eventually, the couple got tired of living in Tuskegee and moved to Abbeville where James was originally from. Rosa describes her mother as not being very, quote, compatible with her father's family, though, and so this situation didn't last long. James wanted to move north to find better jobs, but Leona hated to think of her parents alone on a farm in Pine Level. She went to stay with her parents, pregnant by then, with Rosa's younger brother, Sylvester. James joined them, and they lived as a family until Rosa was about two and a half years old. At that time, James left Pine Level to find work, and Rosa didn't see him again until she was about five years old. At that time, he came and stayed for several days, but then left again, and Rosa didn't see her father until she was an adult and married. For many, this little introduction is enough. The rest of Rosa's story centers around one evening bus ride in December 1955, a bus ride most American children are taught in school as the protest that sparked a nationwide movement to end racial segregation in the South. In her autobiography, My Story, Parks describes that evening this way. One evening in early December 1955, I was sitting in the front seat of the colored section of a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. The white people were sitting in the white section. More people got on and they filled up all the seats in the white section. When that happened, we black people were supposed to give up our seats to the whites, but I didn't move. The white driver said, let me have those front seats. I didn't get up. I was tired of giving in to white people. I'm going to have you arrested, the driver said. You may do that, I answered. Two white policemen came. I asked one of them, why do you push this around? He answered, I don't know, but the, the law is the law and you're under arrest. The result of that conversation was an arrest, a year-long boycott of the Montgomery city buses and ultimately the end of racial segregation on buses in Alabama. There has long been a myth that Rosa Parks was just a lady, just a sweet, nice lady who decided one day that she was tired. Her feet were tired after a long day of work and she wouldn't give up her seat to a white person. And she was, she was physically, emotionally, and spiritually tired of the way that white Americans abused black people. To some extent, Mrs. Parks herself even upholds the myth in her autobiography saying, quote, I had no idea that my small action would help put an end to segregation laws, end quote. Perhaps she meant it more literally. She couldn't be sure it would work after all. Plenty of people had been trying to end segregation by the time she boarded that bus in December, 1955. But it is just a myth. Rosa Parks was a tireless advocate for the rights of black people in America. While maybe that particular ride wasn't planned in advance, there's a long context that makes her bus ride on that night part of a much larger movement that Mrs. Parks was well aware of, that she worked hard for, and that she'd been preparing for her entire life. In fact, her activism started young. Quote, "From the time I was a child I tried to protest against disrespectful treatment, but it was very hard to do anything about segregation and racism when white people had all the power of the law behind them. Somehow we had to change the laws." And, "There's a defining moment in Parks's childhood, defining for her whole family it seems. In 1919 when she was 5 or 6 years old, a white man treated Parks like she was any little girl, not a black little girl." She tells the tale in her autobiography, quote, Moses Hudson, the owner of the plantation next to our land in Pine Level, Alabama, came out from the city of Montgomery to visit and stop by the house. Moses Hudson had his son-in-law with him, a soldier from the north. The Yankee soldier patted me on the head and said I was such a cute little girl. Later that evening, my family talked about how the Yankee soldier had treated me like I was just another little girl, not a little black girl. In those days in the South, white people didn't treat little black children the same way as little white children. End quote. Apparently, old Moses Hudson didn't really like this behavior from his son-in-law, something the Parks family found amusing. Rosa describes hearing this story as one of her earliest memories and alludes to the fact that it gave her a sense of knowing what it meant to be treated as an equal. Her grandfather reinforced this. Born a slave and treated terribly as one, Sylvester lived to see emancipation. He taught his children and then his grandchildren that, quote, you don't put up with bad treatment from anybody, end quote. Rosa would say this demand for respect, quote, was passed down almost in our genes. Like many black children in the South, Rosa picked cotton as a child from, quote, can to can't, meaning sunup until after sunset. Her grandparents were in bad health, so the only income for the family was her mother's teaching salary and Rosa's work as a child. They kept a garden with fruit and nut trees so they had enough to eat, but still Rosa would sometimes go without shoes. The education she received was biased at best. As an adult, she explained that children were taught that black people are, quote, happier segregated, discriminated against, mistreated, and humiliated. It did such a good job of brainwashing children to be complicit in their own degradation that anyone fighting for equal rights was, quote, a freak of nature to them, many times ridiculed by others of his group, end quote. Rosa was a lifelong member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which taught a theology of liberation that affirmed the equality of all people, laid forth a Christian responsibility to act, and provided sustenance to struggle against injustice. She would later say it was, quote, the Lord's power within me to do what I have done, end quote. Rosa's family taught her and her brother to have, quote, a controlled anger, a survival strategy that balanced compliance and militancy. Leona would remind Rosa often of how slaves had had to fool their masters into believing that they were happy, because masters often treated happy slaves better than the unhappy ones. Though slavery had been abolished, this was still the clearest route toward safety. Don't make a fuss, don't be too loud, find ways to protest in humanity that still keep you safe. At the time, the Ku Klux Klan had a large presence in Alabama. Black soldiers returning from World War I were demanding equal rights after having served their country, and the KKK was trying to suppress this through intimidation and scare tactics. Rosa's grandfather started keeping a gun with him everywhere, and the family would go to bed with clothes on so they'd be ready to run if the Klansmen broke into the house. This was the world Rosa was being brought up in. Once, a young white boy named Franklin began taunting Rosa and her brother Sylvester. She picked up a brick and dared him to hit her, and the boy ran off. Her family reprimanded her for it, telling her she'd, quote, be lynched before the age of 20 if she kept up this way. For Rosa, their admonishing felt like betrayal, like they had, quote, aligned with the hostile white race against her. This mentality of of survival and safety always sort of stuck in Rosa's throat. She, quote, longed for ways to contest this treatment and she would say that she would prefer being lynched than being ran over by white people. Rosa would spend her life carefully balancing safety and resistance. In 1923 or 1924, Rosa was sent to Miss White's School, a place run by white women for black girls. It adhered to Booker T. Washington's recommendations of industrial education and focus on the domestic arts like cooking, sewing, and caring for the sick and elderly, largely because these were the only jobs that would be available to adult black women. Rosa learned how to use a sewing machine there, which would serve as a source of income and pride throughout her life. The school taught the girls to be proper Christian women, stressing the dignity of all people. The teachers outlined the freedoms set forth in the Constitution alongside English, science, and geography. Rosa described that education as, quote, We were taught to be ambitious and to believe that we could do what we wanted in life, end quote. Rosa was a scholarship girl there, which meant that in addition to her schoolwork, she had to dust the desk, sweep the floor, empty the waste baskets, and clean the blackboards. But the school closed after Rosa finished eighth grade. Many of the teachers had grown elderly, and the Ku Klux Klan disapproved of their mission, making it very hard for them to recruit younger teachers to take over. People feared that the school was producing empowered young women who were very dangerous to the 1920s status quo. To be clear, even this school, though, was not a utopia. The eponymous Miss White never hired black teachers, and Rosa later recalled that when slavery had come up in class, Miss White had said, quote, If there had not been slavery, black people would probably still be savages climbing trees and eating bananas. So this was the attitude that black people were dealing with even from the quote unquote good white people. After the school closed, Rosa moved to the Booker T. Washington High School for ninth grade and then went on to the laboratory school at Alabama State Teachers College for Negroes, which was still considered a polite word back then, but which I refuse to say again. She had to do this because Montgomery did not provide public high schools for black students. Rosa's mother, Leona, wanted Rosa to become a teacher, but Rosa found the idea too oppressive because of how segregated schools were. She wanted to be a nurse or a social worker. But in the end, she had to drop out of high school in 11th grade to care for her sick grandmother and her increasingly ailing mother. This was just the first time that she would balance her family responsibilities with her political and personal goals. Throughout her life, Rosa engaged in small, personal forms of protest. She avoided segregated drinking fountains and elevators, she would later say, quote, I tried to use them as little as possible. They were there were white and colored fountains, so you just didn't drink. End quote. Author Jean Theo Harris in her book The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks sums up a lot of her family's lessons in relation to this. She says, Respectability meant maintaining your own self-worth, comporting yourself properly, and expecting respect from those around you. Rosa would hold on to these values her whole life. In the spring of 1931, a friend of hers introduced her to Raymond Parks, a politically active man about 10 years her senior. Rosa wasn't interested in him at first because she'd had, quote, some unhappy romantic experiences, and Raymond was more light-skinned than Rosa preferred. By many accounts, Raymond passed for white in a lot of social circumstances, and Rosa was uncomfortable with that at first. He was the first real activist Rosa ever met, and their relationship had a huge influence on her work. And yet, there's little room for his presence in the usual telling of her story. In most of the photos of her, Raymond isn't there. I'm gonna talk more about the framing of Rosa's public story in a little bit, but it's worth noting that Raymond, despite having been an activist himself, is hugely sidelined in this story. When they first met, Rosa was too shy to spend time with him. It took a few tries, but eventually they started going on dates, driving his car around town. What impressed her most was, quote, that he refused to be intimidated by white people, unlike many blacks who figured they had no choice but to stay under Mr. Charlie's heel, end quote. Mr. Charlie, as a side note, is an old pejorative people used to call an arrogant white man. Raymond was an activist too, and at the time, he was actively organizing on behalf of the nine boys aged 12 to 19 who had been wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death in Scottsboro, Alabama. As a side note, during this time, the NAACP tended to stay away from any legal case that involved anything related to sex, whether it was a consensual relationship or sexual violence. So they were not helping the Scottsboro boys, at least not at first. But the American Communist Party and the International Legal Defense took up the case, Raymond and Rosa married on December 18, 1932, when Rosa was 19 years old. It was right in the middle of the Scottsboro case, and Rosa would spend their early days of marriage worrying whether Raymond would come home alive from each meeting about the case. Organizing of this kind was very dangerous. As a black man defending black boys, Raymond was painting a target on his back for the KKK to aim at. Even regular white people who weren't members of the Klan hated this. So all of this organizing had to be very clandestine, and Raymond's description of it sounds like a spy thriller. I would stand in front of a certain streetlight and lean over and tie my shoe a certain way to give a signal as to where we would meet in the day and the time. For security reasons, everyone in the group was known only as Larry, and the committee would meet at odd hours before daybreak or in the middle of the night. Raymond didn't want Rosa to be too active because of the danger, but when the meetings were in their own home, Rosa would attend. Police intimidation found them, though. On nights of meetings, the police would drive back and forth in front of their home, watching for Raymond to return, but they never got him. In the midst of all of this, Raymond encouraged Rosa to finally return to school and finish her high school degree. She never did get to go on to college, even though it was one of her greatest desires, but she was always very proud of the fact that she had that degree. It was hard for her to find work commensurate with her education and skills, though. Office work and secretarial jobs were not available to Black women in the South. So she worked as a nurse's assistant at a hospital for a while, then as a presser at a tailor shop and during World War II at Maxwell Air Force Base. There's not a lot of accounts of the next 10 years of Rose's life. Some biographies pick up in December 1943 when she decided to join the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP. Raymond had been an active member in the 1930s, but had grown disenchanted with its cautiousness and elitism, which led some members to look down on working-class members like the Parks family. At the time, Mrs. Parks was growing increasingly frustrated with the paradoxes of American freedom, especially in light of World War II. Black soldiers like her brother were risking their lives to protect American freedom, but were not granted that freedom back at home. When her brother Sylvester returned home to Montgomery in December 1945, he was treated terribly by locals, especially when he wore his uniform. Returning veterans, Rosa once explained, quote, found that they were treated with even more disrespect, especially if they were in uniform. Whites felt that things should remain as they had always been and that the black veterans were getting too sassy. My brother was one who could not take that kind of treatment anymore. End quote. Sylvester left Alabama, moving to Detroit and never returning to his hometown. Rosa decided to give the NAACP a chance to see if they could help her someday see the land of the free and the home of the brave in action for everyone, rather than just a song lyric. At that first meeting, Mrs. Parks was the only woman among dozens of men, though there were other women involved with the chapter. The serendipity benefited her, though. She was asked to take notes based solely on being a woman, But then, because it was an internal election day, she was asked to serve as the branch secretary. She would later say that she wanted to say no, but was too shy, so she said yes to not rock the boat. Being elected to secretary of the chapter would begin building Rosa's own activist reputation, which would be very important ten years later. Just like biographies of Rosa Parks sometimes skip over the late 1930s, many accounts of the civil rights movement in the U.S. skip over the 1940s. This decade was very important to lay the groundwork for moments like the Brown versus Board of Education decision. But it's not very, like, sexy, historically. Compared to the mass movement sit-ins, boycotts, and successes of the 1950s and 60s, nothing really exciting happened in the 1940s, and very little progress was made. The 1940s were a quote, difficult, dangerous, and ultimately demoralizing period for civil rights activists as a growing black militancy stemming in part from the experiences of World War II met unyielding and increasingly aggressive white resistance and violence. Ms. Parks would later say, it was very difficult to keep going when all our work seemed to be in vain. People like Mrs. Parks toiled away in relative obscurity while their fellow Americans, white and black, steered clear of the inherent dangers of advocacy. To be an activist at this time meant working without any indication that your efforts would be realized in your lifetime, yet Rosa Parks worked anyway. It was in the 1940s, after she joined the NAACP, that Mrs. Parks met E.D. Nixon, a Pullman porter who was active in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the the NAACP. He was spearheading a voter registration campaign for black people. Some dismissed him because he lacked formal education and class respectability, but Rosa had seen his substance. They probably saw each other around at meetings, but their first important interaction was when he showed up at her apartment to ask her to register to vote. Seeing her interest in voting, he left a book for her to read and thus began a working collaboration that would span more than a decade and would help change the fate of the civil rights movement. Nixon became branch president of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP in 1945. This was a significant victory because throughout the early 40s, leadership had been largely ineffective, too busy sowing class divisions within membership to attend to the larger racial issues of the time. In fact, after the Scottsboro case ended, membership in the NAACP dropped at 90%. Nixon focused the chapter on recruitment to membership and then primarily on legal cases challenging white brutality and lynching in Alabama. They also widened the campaign for voter registration. When he took office, only 31 black people in Montgomery were registered to vote out of a population of several thousand. This was largely because the application to vote was incredibly difficult. It required people to either be landowners or to be able to answer incredibly difficult test questions that even PhD holders would have been hard-pressed to get right. A white person often had to vouch for each black person who wanted to register to vote. Then they were forced to pay a poll tax, not just for that year, but for every year they had been eligible to register but had not registered, which could quickly snowball into a very hefty sum. The poll tax was $1.50 per year, which is equal to $23.78 today. Then if they made it through all of that, their full names would be printed in the newspaper, inviting retaliation. Rosa Parks tried three times to register to vote. The first two times she was denied, but not told why. On the third try, she was tired of the registrar's nonsense, and so she hand copied all the questions so she could use them to bring a suit against the voter registration board. The registrar saw what she had done and decided to pass her, though Mrs. Parks, like other black people, had to wait to get the approval and certification in the mail. White people would get their voter registration certification same day, on site. Mrs. Parks had to then pay her poll tax for every year she'd been eligible to vote but hadn't registered, which came to $16.50 in total. That's equal to $251 today. It was a formidable amount of money for a working class family to pay, but Nixon and his voters league had begun raising money to help people pay this fee. Rosa Parks cast her very first vote for Alabama Governor James Folsom in 1945. When he won, she attended his inaugural parade and cheered from the sidewalk. Mrs. Park's focus for many years was the mistreatment of Black Americans under the law. One of her main duties as the NAACP secretary was to record dozens of cases of violence in hopes of possible redress. She was dispatched to cities like Abbeville that didn't have local NAACP chapters to help record crimes against Black people. I won't get into a lot of them just because, well, it gets emotionally exhausting talking about the ways Black people were systematically abused in the South. So let's sum it up this way. The cases she dealt with were grim. Sexual assault and rape of Black women by white men was not uncommon, and she recorded them by hand for the NAACP. Home invasions, lynchings, murder. These were the kinds of crimes that were perpetrated but never investigated by the white police forces in the South. In Alabama, Mrs. Parks was often called in to record them all. In fact, Rosa, will talk with you became the understanding throughout Alabama's Black communities. One of the things the Montgomery branch had to be careful of was to not red bait the government. That meant no obvious or open ties with vocal communists or the Communist Party. The governments of the time often used accusations of communism to discredit civil rights efforts. And so as Mrs. Parks and Nixon began leading the NAACP, they had to distance themselves from that political movement. While the national chapter had its own version of a red scare, expelling members accused of communist leanings, Mrs. Parks simply ignored it. She never publicly said anything for or against the communist movement, but she was never afraid to personally work with organizations accused of subversive actions like the Highlander Folk School. The Montgomery chapter of the NAACP was instead plagued by class divisions. In fact, there was a large class divide among the black population in Montgomery more generally, which made it very difficult for any activist to accomplish truly broad support. The Montgomery branch had a large membership base of professors and black businessmen who didn't like Nixon and Parks because they didn't hold higher education degrees. This would extend far into Mrs. Parks' legacy, in fact. A lot of people in Montgomery didn't see her as a, quote, thoughtful and seasoned strategist in her own right, in part because she lacked the social status, education, and gender that some people believe necessary to be a strategist, end quote. Nevertheless, Parks retained her position as secretary, and in 1947, she was elected to serve on the three-person executive committee of the State Conference of the NAACP. At the same time, Nixon ran and was elected to president of the Alabama State Chapter, though usually shy and preferring not to be in the spotlight. In 1948, she delivered a powerful address at the state convention in Mobile, Alabama, extorting the listeners to step up because, quote, no one should feel proud of a place where black people are intimidated, molested, and maltreated. She finished to thunderous applause and then was elected first ever secretary of the state conference. In 1947, the Freedom Train came to Montgomery. It was a red, white, and blue train that visited all the continental states, bringing with it original copies of the Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and Bill of Rights. The national government required that the exhibits be fully integrated, allowing black and white viewers to mingle freely, which was highly controversial in the South. Birmingham and Memphis had actually refused to comply with this requirement, and so the train didn't stop there. At first, the Montgomery City government had tried to have an all-white committee in charge of handling the train's stay in Montgomery, practically ensuring that it wouldn't be integrated in practice. But Mrs. Parks and her colleagues had pressured city officials to appoint a few black people to the committee. They also requested that federal officials come to Montgomery to ensure all children would be able to enter on a first-come first-served basis. Mrs. Parks herself took a group of black children to see the exhibit, which resulted in numerous hate calls to her home. This was a traumatizing experience for her and for the rest of her life she hated to be asked about it, perhaps worrying that bringing it up would invite renewed vitriol. Despite this fear, Rosa Parks helped with youth organizing during this time as well. Many parents didn't want their children involved because of the danger it invited, but this was a new generation who looked to people like Mrs. Parks and the NAACP to herald change. As Mrs. Parks said, there was this very popular phrase saying that in order to stay out of trouble, you have to stay in your place. But when you stayed in your place, you were still insulted and mistreated if they saw fit to do so. She taught the children the same balance of resistance and compliance her own family had taught her. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional, even if the school were otherwise equal in nature. This was extremely heartening to the community, and people like Rosa Parks were on the front lines of trying to enforce this decision. In Montgomery, attempts to integrate the schools got underway quickly, with Nixon escorting 23 black children to the new all-white William Harrison school, but they weren't allowed in. Then, a decision often referred to as Brown 2 called for a, quote, prompt and reasonable start to full compliance, but turned the actual implementation of Brown over to the states with no actual timetable, allowing for all kinds of delays and malfeasance. The local NAACP began pressuring the Montgomery School Board for a desegregation plan, but of course the board retaliated. They published the names and addresses of the people who had signed a petition pushing for implementation, inviting violence into their homes, parents immediately back down. I'll tell you what comes next after a brief word from a sponsor. The mid-1950s were, in fact, a dangerous time to be part of the NAACP. This kind of retaliation happened repeatedly, and the organization was hard-pressed to prove their own accomplishments in Montgomery. People grew increasingly hostile toward the NAACP, especially in the wake of Brown, when everyone was on edge. In the summer of 1955, Mrs. Parks attended a two-week workshop at the Highlander Folk School entitled Racial Desegregation, Implementing the Supreme Court Decision. The school was founded by Miles Horton in 1932 as a grassroots interracial leadership training school for adults. They held workshops to help local people develop leadership skills and strategies for advocating for social change. Mrs. Parks described her state of mind on the way to Highlander as, quote, rather tense and maybe somewhat bitter over the struggle that we were in, end quote. As before, she was ready to face it, but it was with a darker attitude than usual. She said she went, quote, not because I felt that I was going to be benefited or helped personally, because I felt that I had been destroyed too long ago, end quote. She was becoming increasingly focused on the youth chapter of the NAACP, sure that she would never see desegregation come, but that they might. From July 24th through August 6, 1955, 48 people across several walks of life went through Highlander's workshop to provide community leadership for the desegregation de- transition. The group was about half white and half black and all from the South. By some reports, Mrs. Parks was barely talked at all the first few days because she was nervous about whether the white people in the group would actually respect her perspective and hear her. But she began to relax after a few days saying, quote, I found myself laughing when I hadn't been able to laugh in a long time. The day-to-day at Highlander was in some ways unimaginable for southerners. White and black people lived and ate together, sharing rooms and tables in ways that a very racist society had long banned. Reporters actually asked founder Miles Horton about how he managed to get different races to eat together, and he gave them a very amusing tongue-in-cheek response. First, the food is prepared. Second, it's put on the table. Third, we ring the bell, end quote. One of his main like methods of fighting segregation seem to be just like pointing out very obviously the complete absurdity of it. Her time in Highlander was a respite. In a later interview, Mrs. Parks would describe it as, quote, a relaxing atmosphere that was more than a vacation, but an education in itself. For the first time in my adult life, I knew that this could be a unified society, that there was such a thing as people of all races and backgrounds meeting and having workshops and living together in peace and harmony. Nevertheless, she still left Highlander, not sure that she could affect change in Montgomery. She called it the cradle of the Confederacy and was worried that people would be too complacent and divided to come together as needed to change things. According to Jean Harris, quote, many of the workshop participants agreed with her on the futility of trying to mount a mass movement in Montgomery, end quote. But just five months later, the moment that Rosa Parks is famous for came. Bus rides in Montgomery were in many ways the closest and most confrontational version of segregation in the South. Segregated public spaces like water fountains and bathrooms didn't require constant enforcement the way that the bus did. So here's how it worked. Black people constituted the majority of bus riders in Montgomery. They paid the same fare and yet received inferior service. Some routes in the city had few to no white passengers at all, yet the first 10 seats on every bus remained reserved for them, even if no one sat there. On many routes, black riders would literally stand next to empty seats the entire journey. The only exception was for black maids or nurses who were allowed to sit with their white charges, which obviously further underscores how this whole system existed solely for the comfort of white people. Throughout her life, Rosa Parks had had trouble with different bus drivers. Many of them would make black riders pay at the front only to get off again and Enter the bus through the back door. In many places, if the front seats reserved for white passengers were filled, the driver had the prerogative to extend the white-only section, even if it meant kicking black people out of seats they already occupied. And of course, drivers didn't do this respectfully. There was a lot of use of the N-word and other derogatory slurs involved. It was a harrowing experience for many. Mrs. Parks once said, quote, You died a little each time you found yourself face-to-face with this kind of discrimination. Mrs. Parks wasn't the only one to make a stand on a city bus. There was a long history of protests and altercations that she would have been only too aware of. Since Montgomery was host to two Air Force bases, which were both largely desegregated, a lot of the conflicts on the buses occurred between Black service people and white bus drivers during and after World War II. Theo Harris's book describes at least three violent encounters where the police were called and Black service members were injured or killed. Parks worked briefly at Maxwell Air Force Base and said that it opened her eyes to an alternate reality from the segregation the rest of Montgomery enforced. According to Theo Harris, Parks sometimes rode the bus with a white woman and her child sitting across from them and chatting. When they reached the edge of the base and boarded the city bus, she had to go to the back. Seeing real and effective desegregation at the base must have made life outside of base seem that much more galling and highlighted for Parks how absolutely arbitrary and ridiculous the whole system was civilians had also made their stands in 1944 a woman named viola white was beaten and arrested for refusing to give up her seat she appealed her case to the circuit court and to silence her the police kidnapped and raped her 16 year old daughter in 1950 hilliard brooks was shot and killed for refusing to exit the bus and reboard through the back doors the brooks family lived across the hall from the parkses I say all this not for the, like, titillation of a violent crime, but because it's part of the myth of Rosa Parks that she was the first and only in Montgomery to try to protest bus segregation. But to say that erases the very real history of terror and sacrifice that other people went through. In many ways, Montgomery was a powder keg and Miss Parks was the spark that finally lit it, but that's not to say that people didn't try beforehand. However, knowing this as she would have, I think also makes Rosa Parks that much braver. She knew intimately how her stand could end. As a woman on a bus, she was in a lot of danger, and I think that makes her choice on December 1st, 1955 that much more astounding. Montgomery had an interesting clause in their bus segregation laws. A 1900 boycott from the black community won a change to the city ordinance to specify that a black passenger did not have to give up their seat for a white passenger if there were no other seats available. If there were other seats available for the back, the black passenger could be forced to move, but they couldn't be forced to give up their seat to stand. This is key, so remember it. By 1955, the Montgomery NAACP was actively keeping their eyes open for a court case that they could use to test the legality of bus segregation. The Women's Political Council formed in 1946 by one of Parks' former classmates, Mary Fair Burks, had already suggested a boycott by this point, but the NAACP really wanted a legal case that would bring the law itself into question. There were a few other cases they considered, but I won't get too far into them. Briefly, one was Claudette Colvin, a tiny 15-year-old girl who was ordered to move out of a seat on March 2, 1955. She refused, as did a pregnant woman sitting next to her. Importantly, there were no other open seats on the bus. The transit police were called, then the city police. Claudette Colvin was handcuffed by two officers and arrested. The police mocked her the whole way to the station and made lewd comments that made her fear they were going to rape her. After she was let out of bail, unharmed, thankfully, the WPC called for a boycott, but many in the city were too nervous to go through with it. WPC president, Ann Robinson, later said, the women wanted to be certain the entire city was behind them and opinions differed where Claudette was concerned. Some felt she was too young to be the trigger that precipitated the movement. Not everybody was ready, end quote. Nevertheless, a new minister Montgomery, someone you might maybe have heard of before, a young Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. had gone with Robinson to city officials to try to guarantee that Colvin would get a fair trial. Rosa Parks began fundraising for Colvin's case, hoping that it would embolden other young people and spark more interest in the NAACP among the Montgomery youth. The thing was, there was a question of whether Claudette had fought back. She said she went limp. Others say she fought like a, quote, tigress. She was charged with assaulting an officer, and when her trial happened on May 6th, that was the only charge that wasn't dropped. That was the end of the case for the NAACP. Without being charged with breaking the segregation law, they couldn't use her case to directly challenge said law. The other case the NAACP considered was Mary Louise Smith, who was arrested on October 21, 1955 for refusing to give up her seat. She was arrested and bailed out. Edie Nixon, who was heading up this project for the NAACP, visited the Smith family as he had the Colvins and ruled Mary Louise Smith out. He described the family home as, quote, low-type, claiming that if they tried to make a case out of her and the press had gone to their home to investigate, it would have made the case a laughingstock. Nixon's concern was largely just that the Smiths were poor and the middle-class black people wouldn't support them, and neither would sympathetic white people. There was also an allegation that her father was a drinker, which also would not have been sympathetic for a jury, though the Smith family has said that's not true. Nixon would later say that the problem with both cases was that, quote, neither young woman was strong enough to withstand the attacks a case would engender. It's hard to know if that's genuine concern or strategizing on his part. Some activists disagreed with him, but he was a force to be reckoned with in Montgomery. Without his endorsement, it was a lost cause. Okay, the moment you've been waiting for. Thursday, December 1st, 1955. Mrs. Rosa Parks finished work after a particularly busy day. She had even spent her break finalizing plans for an NAACP workshop she was hosting that weekend. She spent the afternoon hemming and pressing pants. Her shoulder was bothering her. The first bus home was too crowded, so she waited for the next one. She said many times that, quote, this day was just like any other day, end quote. The mid-1950s were, in fact, a dangerous time to be part of the NAACP. This kind of retaliation happened repeatedly, and the organization was hard-pressed to prove their own accomplishments in Montgomery. People grew increasingly hostile toward the NAACP, especially in the wake of Brown, when everyone was on edge. In the summer of 1955, Mrs. Parks attended a two-week workshop at the Highlander Folk School entitled Racial Desegregation, Implementing the Supreme Court Decision. The school was founded by Miles Horton in 1932 as a grassroots interracial leadership training school for adults. They held workshops to help local people develop leadership skills and strategies for advocating for social change. Mrs. Parks described her state of mind on the way to Highlander as, quote, rather tense and maybe somewhat bitter over the struggle that we were in, end quote. As before, she was ready to face it, but it was with a darker attitude than usual, she said she went, quote, not because I felt that I was going to be benefited or helped personally, because I felt that I had been destroyed too long ago, quote. She was becoming increasingly focused on the youth chapter of the NAACP, sure that she would never see desegregation come, but that they might. From July 24th through August 6, 1955, 48 people across several walks of life went through Highlanders' workshop to provide community leadership for the desegregation de- transition. The group was about half white and half black and all from the South. By some reports, Mrs. Parks was barely talked at all the first few days because she was nervous about whether the white people in the group would actually respect her perspective and hear her. But she began to relax after a few days saying, quote, I found myself laughing when I hadn't been able to laugh in a long time. The day-to-day at Highlander was in some ways unimaginable for Southerners. White and Black people lived and ate together, sharing rooms and tables in ways that a very racist society had long banned. Reporters actually asked founder Miles Horton about how he managed to get different races to eat together, and he gave them a very amusing tongue-in-cheek response. First, the food is prepared. Second, it's put on the table. Third, we ring the bell, end quote. One of his main like methods of fighting segregation seem to be just like pointing out very obviously the complete absurdity of it. Her time in Highlander was a respite. In a later interview, Mrs. Parks would describe it as quote, a relaxing atmosphere that was more than a vacation, but an education in itself. For the first time in my adult life, I knew that this could be a unified society, that there was such a thing as people of all races and backgrounds meeting and having workshops and living together in peace and harmony. Nevertheless, she still left Highlander, not sure that she could affect change in Montgomery. She called it the cradle of the Confederacy and was worried that people would be too complacent and divided to come together as needed to change things. According to Jean Harris, quote, many of the workshop participants agreed with her on the futility of trying to mount a mass movement in Montgomery, end quote. But just five months later, the moment that Rosa Parks is famous for came. Bus rides in Montgomery were in many ways the closest and most confrontational version of segregation in the South. Segregated public spaces like water fountains and bathrooms didn't require constant enforcement the way that the bus did. So here's how it worked. Black people constituted the majority of bus riders in Montgomery. They paid the same fare and yet received inferior service. Some routes in the city had few to no white passengers at all, yet the first 10 seats on every bus remained reserved for them, even if no one sat there. On many routes, black riders would literally stand next to empty seats the entire journey. The only exception was for black maids or nurses who were allowed to sit with their white charges, which obviously further underscores how this whole system existed solely for the comfort of white people. Throughout her life, Rosa Parks had had trouble with different bus drivers. Many of them would make black riders pay at the front only to get off again and enter the bus through the back door. In many places, if the front seats reserved for white passengers were filled, the driver had the prerogative to extend the white only section, even if it meant kicking black people out of seats they already occupied. And of course, drivers didn't do this respectfully. There was a lot of use of the N-word and other derogatory slurs involved. It was a harrowing experience for many. Mrs. Parks once said, quote, you died a little each time you found yourself face-to-face with this kind of discrimination. Mrs. Parks wasn't the only one to make a stand on a city bus. There was a long history of protests and altercations that she would have been only too aware of. Since Montgomery was host to two Air Force bases, which were both largely desegregated, a lot of the conflicts on the buses occurred between black service people and white bus drivers during and after World War II. Theo Harris's book describes at least three violent encounters where the police were called and black service members were injured or killed. Parks worked briefly at Maxwell Air Force Base and said that it opened her eyes to an alternate reality from the segregation the rest of Montgomery enforced. According to Theo Harris, Parks sometimes rode the bus with a white woman and her child sitting across from them and chatting. When they reached the edge of the base and boarded the city bus, she had to go to the back. Seeing real and effective desegregation at the base must have made life outside of the base seem that much more galling and highlighted for Parks how absolutely arbitrary and ridiculous the whole system was. Civilians had also made their stands. In 1944, a woman named Viola White was beaten and arrested for refusing to give up her seat. She appealed her case to the circuit court, and to silence her, the police kidnapped and raped her 16-year-old daughter. In 1950, Hilliard Brooks was shot and killed for refusing to exit the bus and reboard through the back doors. The Brooks family lived across the hall from the Parkses. I say all this not for the like titillation of a violent crime, but because it's part of the myth of Rosa Parks that she was the first and only in Montgomery to try to protest bus segregation. But to say that, erases the very real history of terror and sacrifice that other people went through. In many ways, Montgomery was a powder keg, and Miss Parks was the spark that finally lit it but that's not to say that people didn't try beforehand. However, knowing this as she would have, I think also makes Rosa Parks that much braver. She knew intimately how her stand could end. As a woman on a bus, she was in a lot of danger and I think that makes her choice on December 1st, 1955 that much more astounding. Montgomery had an interesting clause in their bus segregation laws. A 1900 boycott from the black community won a change to the city ordinance to specify that a black passenger did not have to give up their seat for a white passenger if there were no other seats available. If there were other seats available for the back, the black passenger could be forced to move, but they couldn't be forced to give up their seat to stand. This is key, so remember it. By 1955, the Montgomery NAACP was actively keeping their eyes open for a court case that they could use to test the legality of bus segregation. The Women's Political Council formed in 1946 by one of Parks' former classmates, Mary Fair Burks, had already suggested a boycott by this point, but the NAACP really wanted a legal case that would bring the law itself into question. There were a few other cases they considered, but I won't get too far into them. Briefly, one was Claudette Colvin, a tiny 15-year-old girl who was ordered to move out of a seat on March 2, 1955. She refused, as did a pregnant woman sitting next to her. Importantly, there were no other open seats on the bus. The transit police were called, then the city police. Claudette Colvin was handcuffed by two officers and arrested. The police mocked her the whole way to the station and made lewd comments that made her fear they were going to rape her. After she was let out of bail, unharmed, thankfully, the WPC called for a boycott, but many in the city were too nervous to go through with it. WPC president, Ann Robinson, later said, the women wanted to be certain the entire city was behind them and opinions differed where Claudette was concerned. Some felt she was too young to be the trigger that precipitated the movement. Not everybody was ready, end quote. Nevertheless, a new minister in Montgomery, someone you might maybe have heard of before, a young Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., had gone with Robinson to city officials to try to guarantee that Colvin would get a fair trial. Rosa Parks began fundraising for Colvin's case, hoping that it would embolden other young people and spark more interest in the NAACP among the Montgomery youth. The thing was, there was a question of whether Claudette had fought back. She said she went limp. Others say she fought like a quote, tigress. She was charged with assaulting an officer and when her trial happened on May 6th, that was the only charge that wasn't dropped. That was the end of the case for the NAACP. Without being charged with breaking the segregation law, they couldn't use her case to directly challenge said law. The other case the NAACP considered was Mary Louise Smith, who was arrested on October 21st, 1955 for refusing to give up her seat. She was arrested and bailed out. Edie Nixon, who was heading up this project for the NAACP, visited the Smith family as he had the Colvins and ruled Mary Louise Smith out. He described the family home as, quote, low type, claiming that if they tried to make a case out of her and the press had gone to their home to investigate, it would have made the case a laughingstock. Nixon's concern was largely just that the Smiths were poor and the middle-class black people wouldn't support them, and neither would sympathetic white people. There was also an allegation that her father was a drinker, which also would not have been sympathetic for a jury, though the Smith family has said that's not true. Nixon would later say that the problem with both cases was that, quote, neither young woman was strong enough to withstand the attacks a case would engender. It's hard to know if that's genuine concern or strategizing on his part. Some activists disagreed with him, but he was a force to be reckoned with in Montgomery. Without his endorsement, it was a lost cause. Okay, the moment you've been waiting for. Thursday, December 1st, 1955. Mrs. Rosa Parks finished work after a particularly busy day. She had even spent her break finalizing plans for an NAACP workshop she was hosting that weekend. She spent the afternoon hemming and pressing pants. Her shoulder was bothering her the first bus home was too crowded, so she waited for the next one. She said many times that, quote, this day was just like any other day, end quote. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. All by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly.